What do you do when the police respond to nonviolence with violence? The police tear gassed crowds of people that were holding vigils for Michael Brown. The police beat people with their batons. The police sent in the armored tanks from Iraq. Um, and people then, again, going back to self-defense, people responded by throwing bottles back at police, by burning Arby's down, um, by looting. But it was the police, you know, it was the police response to that nonviolent protest in the recent period that I think is really important. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hello, I am Kianga Yamada-Taylor and I'm here with Elizabeth Hinton and we are here together uh, to talk about the publication of her new book, America on Fire, the untold history of police violence and black rebellion since the 1960s. So um, Elizabeth is an associate professor of history and African-American studies at Yale University and professor of law at Yale Law School. Um, I'm a a professor of African-American studies at Princeton um, and so excited to talk about this wonderful book. Um, How you doing? I'm great to be talking to you, Kianga. This is quite an honor, and I couldn't imagine a more fitting way to launch this book. So thank Excellent. you for taking the time to read and be in conversation with me. Absolutely. Let's get into it. Yeah. Um, okay, so I want to I want to start with kind of a, a, a long question. I have a quote that I want you to uh, sort of talk about in why you wrote this book. Um, but I want to start with Martin Luther King as uh, the kind of his birthday as a federal holiday in 1983, I think, helped to cement the civil rights movement as part of our national narrative and our you know ongoing journey towards a more perfect um, union. And as part of that, uh, it has valorized the tactics of the civil rights movement, of the peaceful, nonviolence, church-based um, struggle. And yet we rarely ask about the particularly the the kind of short lifespan um, of the the civil rights movement in the 1960s and of the tactics of uh, peaceful nonviolent protest. Um, In fact, as you point out um, in your book, uh, that what you describe as the violent turn in black protests um, begins as early as 1964. Um, in Harlem, in Philadelphia, in a handful uh, of other um, of other cities, uh, and the turn uh, towards violence, of course, is universally condemned in its own period. When you know uh, uh, the violence broke out in response to George Floyd um, uh, last summer, it's universally condemned in our time. Uh, There is that perennial question of why are they burning down their own communities? Um, But I think that this, particularly the civil rights movement and the shift 
to violence um, as, as a tragedy is captured, and I want to quote this, um, on the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington, uh, former President Barack Obama uh, gave a speech um, in which he described that transition in the following way, quote, if we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit during the course of 50 years, there were times when some of us claiming to push for change lost our way. The anguish of assassinations set off self-defeating riots, legitimate grievances against police brutality tipped into excuse-making for criminal behavior. Racial politics kicked out both ways as the transformative message of unity and brotherhood was drowned out by the language of recrimination. What had been once a call for equality of opportunity, the chance for all Americans to work hard and get ahead, was too often framed as a mere desire for government support, as if we had no agency in our own liberation, as if poverty was an excuse for not raising your child and the bigotry of others was a reason to give up on yourself. All of that history is how progress stalled. That is how hope was diverted. It is how our country remained divided. <laughs> how does your book challenge what I think is a fairly accepted narrative about what went wrong in the 60s and the legacy we continue to live with? Yeah, that's a really unfortunate uh you that I had not uh, encountered before, but, you know, Obama sounds a lot like Johnson and frankly, also, you know, a lot like Reagan with this idea about these ideas about dependency kind of pervading the, the narrative that he's telling about this kind of lost moment or wrong turn in the 60s. I mean, just just on the King holiday, you know, it's so interesting that by the 80s, even that nonviolent civil rights protest is being kind of valorized and, and celebrated when, you know, much of the response to that nonviolent protest was police violence, was uh, German shepherd dogs being sicked on black kids with, with, with the hoses. Um, so the, the, the kind of police violence that I'm dealing with in response to political violent political rebellion also uh, was the response to the nonviolent direct action protests that um, that's being celebrated. So, you know, Obama's the idea that somehow the riots were these kind of mass moments of criminality and that they were examples of criminal behavior. Again, I mean, that sounds to me very much like Johnson, because immediately after Harlem erupts in 64, after a 15 year old high school stu student is killed by the New York Police Department, Johnson takes the same makes the same steps and moves that Obama did. He says this is not about civil rights protests. This is criminal. This is tied to the crime problem. This is tied to juvenile delinquency. It's meaningless. It's, um, it's carnivalesque and the, this, it's a riot, right? And as a riot, the best way to respond to it is with police force. And what Johnson missed and what Obama missed is that these, these polit this political violence is rooted in the same socioeconomic demands of the civil rights movement. That is an end to police, police brutality, an end to white supremacist terrorism, jobs. People aren't talking, what did he say, um, for government support. People aren't saying we want welfare. They're saying we want jobs and we want decent housing without roaches and rats running through our beds at night. 
People are calling for better and more expansive educational systems, educational opportunities, college scholarships, and really the to, to be treated like full citizens by their city and by their country. That's what the rebellions were about. And in making this and ignoring those root causes and ignoring the demands that the people who participated in the rebellions were making, uh, we get into this policy cycle where the only response to this violence is more police. It's not to actually give people jobs. It's not to invest resources into communities. It's to, it's, it's to invest resources in the form of police and surveillance and then later incarceration. So, you know, that, what year did you say that was? 2013. 2013. So, you know, Way Linda, back then. yeah, very, very alive, alive and well. And that's been the, the dominant view ever since that there's some forms of respectable protests and 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 other protests that is deemed as criminal, ignoring the fact that you know this political violence is in response to police violence. Well, one of I want to talk about that, but the first thing I I think that one of the things that your book really expertly shows is that the way that Obama is characterizing this and so many others. Uh, is really that they're focused on what we might call the kind of uh, high riot period of of the the 60s. So the big, the Watts and Detroit and the sort of high points. But what your work shows is that um, in many ways, that was just the beginning, uh, that you have uncovered um, this trove of uh, other rebellions that move way, you know, that continue into the uh, 1960, really peak into the 1970s, really peaking in 1970 with something like over 600, 633 uh, uh, rebellions in that year. So one, I would like, you know, I think it would be helpful if you could, one, talk about, uh, you're characterizing these as, as political struggles, as rebellions and not riots. Um, and so that's that's one thing. If you could talk about your uh, distinction um, and then if you could say something about uh, what it means to have uncovered these uh, hundreds of additional uh, rebellions, what is what is the significance of that? Not not necessarily discovery, but of integrating that into our understanding of uh, this, the Black freedom struggle um, in the latter part of the 60s, moving into the 1970s. Yeah. So, you know, I, I have to admit that I kind of bought into that dominant narrative, even in the writing of my first book, which is, you know, when I started encountering in the in the mainstream press, the persistence of rebellion into the in the 70s. But the idea that, you know, Watts kind of set everything off in 65. Newark and Detroit were the high points. And then the, the last hurrah of rebellion were the, you know, 137 some in, instances that erupted after Martin Luther King was assassinated. And the, you know, the the fact that we missed, you know, I think in 68, there were 500 some rebellions in 69. There, you know, we're, we're getting into the 600s and 70 were in the mid, mid 600s. The fact that we missed that actually, uh, Black, the, the kind of dominant form of protest, at least among young black people after Martin Luther King's assassination was political rebellion is really significant because this is a response to the deployment of 
the war on crime. The launch of the war on crime with the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968, which was the capstone of Johnson society. The earlier crime war programs, you know, t- tended to go to those big cities. So helicopters for Los Angeles and riot con- control training for Detroit. But when this major monumental, unprecedented piece of federal legislation passes in, in, in June 68, that's when the surplus military weapons from Vietnam and interventions in Latin America and in the Caribbean, the M4 carbine rifles, the tear gas, the armored tanks, uh, the bulletproof vests go not just to those big cities, but go to smaller cities, go to mid-sized cities, go to rural communities. Um, and with that also the expansion of, of, of policing, of ordinary and everyday activity. And how do residents respond to that policing? <laughs> you know, they, they don't say, this is great. You know, our, our communities are riddled with crime and, um, you know, thanks for breaking up our barbecue for no reason. Thanks for arresting us for hanging out in the park after dark. Um, they fight back. The response is to fight back. And, 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 and that, I think especially in terms of the narratives we tell about black protest in general and and the relationship of the people who are being policed and surveilled and disproportionately incarcerated to those institutions is is really important. It also, you know, with with the King rebellions kind of being actually the beginning point rather than the end point um, is significant because it it underscores the ways in which a new generation, a, a rising generation of young people who had grown up you know, seeing the civil rights movement unfold and all of its promises um, with the assassination of, of, of King and by 68 with the launch of the war on crime had seen that, you know, many of the everyday conditions that they were living in hadn't really changed. And that and that nonviolent direct action protest uh, wasn't enough to secure the, the, the full um, economic and political citizenship that they wanted, that their parents wanted, that their communities demanded. And in in nearly every community, in every community that experienced rebellion, um, there had been nonviolent protests for decades Mm. leading up to the explosion, right? People are in the streets, people are going to city hall, people are filing lawsuits, they're petitioning their local officials, and they are consistently ignored. And the rebellions begin to start new conversations in communities, not, you know, that don't ultimately lead to to lasting change in many respects, but they become the kind of dominant form of protest. And that is um, to not embrace a politics of nonviolence, but to embrace a a politics of self-defense and, 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 you know, self-preservation when you're living in what is essentially an occupied community. One of the things that I think is is really powerful about this is the I think we often talk about police brutality as the spark, right? That what these actions are really about is the housing, is jobs, is education. And my reading um, of your book is that you're saying that yes, that that is uh, certainly a part of what people are rebelling against, but we also have to understand policing itself as a source of oppression. It's not just a spark. It's not just, you know, this thing that sets the real stuff off, that policing in and of itself is a source of oppression in these communities and that people are fighting back against that. And what I think is really important here is that because of the violence of the police, and 
you know, as an as an aside, I think one of the things that you're doing that is so important is reviving our historical understanding of the role of white violence in the subjugation of black communities. So not just the police, right? But there is a history of white vigilante violence, but really the violence of white America in the form of mobs, so they're lynch mobs that you know s- extend over the course of the 20th century. Uh, there are the mobs of renters and homeowners that try to hem black people into to, to black neighborhoods. But there is a kind of wanton violence among white people directed at black people that is unpoliced, that exists outside of the law. And so I, you capture this when you talk about Robert Williams, right, in North Carolina, that there is no law for black people. And the only language that white people seem to understand is the language of violence. And so you have both issues happening. One is that policing is a source of oppression. And two, that white people only appear to be responsive to violence. And in both of these ways, Black resistance as violence is legitimized for you. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I I think, you know, with, with with Robert F. Williams, I mean, he's basically saying, like, given the fact that we're that we're living under not only oppressive white white supremacist terrorists, but also a, an oppressive state and an oppressive law enforcement is, system, the only way that we can ensure the safety of, of our communities is to arm ourselves, is to fight back. Um, you know, absent any recourse from government. And and this comes up again, you know, by in the 1980s in Miami, you know, like self-defense um, becomes a way to maintain one's dignity and keep one's community safe when, as in the case in Cairo, Illinois, white vigilantes are literally shooting nightly into a black housing project. So what do you do? I mean, that violence is legitimate, right? But when the residents of that housing project called Pyramid Courts arm themselves to protect their children, um, many of whom have to sleep in bathtubs so that they don't, so a stray bullet doesn't catch them. That's seen as terrorist. That's seen as wanton and violent and criminal. And there, there's an important distinction because it's it's important to say that while these two forms of violence from white people and black people are relational, they're not symmetrical. Um, in the sense that white violence is uh, imposed in a way to control African-Americans, to limit Black people's access uh, to to the public, really, to to civil society. And Black violence is is resistance. It is self-defense. Yes. Yeah, precisely. So what one of the things that I was struck by it's just at the at the back of the the, the book and, and people who who get this book and everyone should get this book um, is an astonishing list uh, of the places where uh, rebellions took place. And, you know, I think that we have this very static view of this era. Right. That the civil rights movement is peaceful and nonviolent in the South. And then there's this black power riot, uh, destruction in the North, and that's all we know. And yet your list shows that, no, this rebellion is a tactic that is used 
big cities, small cities, towns, north, south, midwest, all over. And so how one, how did you come to uncover uh, these this expansive list of, of rebellions? And what does its breadth and scale tell us uh, about who was involved and, and what was happening? So let me answer the second part sure. first. And, and, and that is that, you know, I think what what the book tries to show in in offering a, a cross regional sampling of this political violence in large cities and rural communities across the United States is that precisely what you're saying, disrupting this narrative that somehow, you know, in the southern states, uh, black people embrace respectable, as we've been talking about, right, nonviolent direct action. And then, you know, urban ghetto youth were the ones who were, you know, throwing Molotov cocktails at police. That simply isn't true. And also that this form of political violence was incredibly uh, widespread. And so that was one of the things in, in laying out the timeline that, you know, when, when you all put it, when I put it all together was, was, was quite surprising to me. So the timeline is, I think, you know, uh, for me, a uh, I hope will be both a gift to future historians in the, you know, 2,400 some cities that are listed in in it, um, but also can open up new discussions about uh, police violence and and this history of um, racial oppression in communities that um, may not have be aware or may think that like, well, Minneapolis, George Floyd, that's, that's really far away. That doesn't have, you know, that's, that doesn't happen here. And so I think that the timeline itself shows that all of us have a stake in this. This is part of all of our history. I bet that for most people, either their hometown or a place that they've lived is, is in that list or certainly a place within a 30 mile radius of, of where they lived and not necessarily a big city. So the timeline itself would not have been possible and the book would not have been possible without uh, the political science scientist Christian Davenport, who had the records of the Lemberg Center for the Study of Violence in his possession. And I met Christian at uh, a barbecue at Heather Ann Thompson's house um, in Detroit. Christian was getting ready to do a major 50 year. This was in the summer of 2016. So right after my first book came out. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, I was aware that that rebellion, you know, happened at least sporadically into the seventies. Cause I came across some of this stuff in, in my first book, but, um, I had no idea the, the breadth or scope or frequency. And, you know, I was talking to Christian about this when he was, um, you know, talking to me about what he was doing, the work he was doing around the commemoration of the, 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 the Detroit rebellion. And he said, you know, I have the records, of the Lemberg center at my office. Why don't you come take a look? And the Lemberg Center formed in uh, in 61, at, immediately after John F. Kennedy's assassination. And they charted um, these researchers based at Brandeis, basically did interviews with people and, and data collection and um, scoured local newspaper clippings across the United States for any and every instance of violence, not just black rebellions, but also student protests, uh, labor disputes. I mean, this is such an incredibly rich archive. And because these local newspaper sources are so hard to locate, I mean, many of these, you know, newspapers.com has expanded things, but these are newspapers that you, you can't even get on newspapers.com, um, we, we had missed a lot of this. So, um, you know, when I, when I went into Christian's office and I encountered this, this, just this, this treasure trove of story after story that, uh, that was just stunning to me. 
And I, I was just like, I, I cannot believe that we have missed all of this. Um, and the archive, you know, newspaper sources are difficult to work with, right? Mm-hmm. They're limited in, in many ways, but there are also such rich moments and such rich stories contained within them. So Christian, as part of the radical information project that he's run, has been quantifying this violence. And so help me not only, you know, do the counts, but put together the timeline and to make this research available for the book. And I know that Christian is in the process of digitizing a lot of these archives and making this accessible. But one wonders, I mean, this archive should have been public (laughs) decades ago, and it's kind of been passed around, you know, among this group of political scientists, and I just happened to get access to it. And so, you know, I, I feel fortunate for that. But, you know, one wonders if we would have, you know, been able to know this history, um, far, far long ago and not, you know, in, in 2020 had this archive been made public. So it's also the case for, um, you know, why it's so important to preserve this history and preserve archives and make them, um, as widely and publicly accessible as possible, because, you know, if we don't do that, then we're denying ourselves this really, really crucial history. Absolutely. I wonder if you could talk some about, um, how, Black rebellion changes uh, over time. So we see this uh, period of uh, intense Black rebellion up into uh, around 1972 when they start to uh, to taper off. Um, and then again in 1980 is a kind of reemergence of uh, Black rebellion on a on a large scale. And then 92 in in LA. And so there's an obvious dip, even as the conditions and uh, for poor and working class African Americans um, uh, remain somewhat consistent. How do you explain what happens, why this changes? Yeah, that's a really great question and, and an important distinction to make clear because, you know, the rebellions of the 60s are not the same thing as what we witnessed last summer. Although, right, the, the the continued miss opportunities and the continued socioeconomic inequalities that are at the root at that of them have remained the same. And of course the 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 police um, as intervening as this the, the most tangible expression of these various forces of systemic racism. But in the 60s and the 70s, especially the, you know, the 68 to 72 period that I call the crucible period that is in response to the war on crime, you know, you 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 see rebellions in response to the policing of ordinary everyday activity. So, you know, things I've talked about, um, community gatherings, family barbecues, uh, young mothers getting evicted from housing projects and the community intervening and trying to stop that. Um, You know, people preventing their friends from getting arrested for essentially no reason and for not doing anything wrong and certainly not doing something that would be um, cause for arrest in a middle class or a white community. So they're in response to the policing of the everyday. you know, the decade of the 70s is a is a really important period of transition. I mean, one, because by the the 80s, many black Americans, certainly poor black Americans are worse off than they were um, in the 1960s. So, you know, in part, this is this this reflects the continued embrace of policing and incarceration, the ramping up of mass incarceration as a policy response mm-hmm. to manage poverty inequality. So, you know, social programs are being disinvested from 
and through the 70s and the you know police police and prisons are becoming the thoroughly implemented social program in many in many of these communities i think there are other really important developments through the 70s too that help us think about you know why we saw that particular period of of wayne and that is of course um the rise of black elected officials i mean so much of what people were responding to in the late 60s and 70s was they, the fact that they were, there was no there was no seeming political uh, representation, no voice in the halls of power um, for racially marginalized groups. And of course, you know, that is not to say that, rep, you know, representation is not a solvent and people quickly discovered that. But I think that that did help to, in some ways, uh lead to a, a period where rebellions weren't happening as frequently. And that is not to say that they're, that they're not happening at all, but not happening as frequently. And then of course, you know, mass incarceration itself, the fact that, you know, this is a moment when we're beginning to see the imposition of um, harsher penalties, mandatory minimum sentences, the rise of supermax prisons makes the stakes of rebellion for many um, much more stark. And so it is mm-hmm. somewhat of an in- indication that, you know, among the 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 tar- targeted low income communities of color that the kind of policing of the ordinary and the everyday over time became bitterly um, accepted so that by the the 80s and the 90s and, and even today right the rebellions and uprisings emerge in response to exceptional incidents more exceptional incidents of police brutality and of course they're not just about that one in, you know, incident. They're right. about the buildup. <laughs> They're about subsequent incidents over time that, you know, one incident just ends up being the tipping point. And in both Miami in 1980 and Los Angeles in 1992, the rebellions emerged not in response to the killing of a young black motorist named Arthur McDuffie in Miami itself or the videotapes beating of Rodney King in, in LA in 1991, but the acquittal of the four, in both cases, four police officers that were involved in the violence. It was in response to the miscarriage of justice itself. Mm. Um, you know, black communities waited for 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 the the trial to play out, hoping that maybe the officers would be held accountable. And in the absence of that, that's when we get the eruptions. Um, Cincinnati in two thousand one similar thing was in response to the lack of transparency by the police and local government after a 20-year-old black man named Timothy Thomas was killed in a dark alley by a Cincinnati police officer and he was the 15th black man to be killed within 6 years uh, by the Cincinnati police which led to the the largest rebellion since uh Los Angeles 1992 i think one really important distinction from you know the even the 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 64 uh, to Timothy Thomas in 2001 and what we saw beginning with Ferguson in last summer is that the uprisings in Ferguson um, and in Minneapolis didn't start, you know, the, the jump off was not violent. The jump off was not um, throwing rocks at police officers or even beating white people or setting yeah. fires. The, the, the jump off was all of these uprisings started out as peaceful protests and vigils. And the police responded to that nonviolent, again, going back to that Obama quote, what do you do when the police respond to nonviolence with violence? The police tear gassed crowds of people that were holding vigils for Michael Brown. The police beat people with their batons, the police sent in the armored tanks from Iraq. Um, and people then, again, going back to self-defense, people responded by throwing bottles back at police, by burning Arby's down, right. um, by looting. 
But it was the police, you know, it was the police response to that nonviolent protest in the recent period that I think is really important. As Derricka Purnell, I was just in conversation with her about the book recently, and, and she kind of said it um, in some ways better than I could have. And um, in, in response to some of these dynamics I'm describing in the book, and she said, you know, basically, she's like, have we gotten soft? Like, you know, the protesters have gotten more peaceful, right? But the police have, the, the, the police violence has stayed the same, right? Wow, um, yeah. And that, you know, that raises an, a, an interesting question that I want to get to before we uh, take questions from the audience, which is the question now of police reform. Because I think in the, the previous period, you know, we talked about earlier, the police are a source of violence in Black communities. They're not, they're not coming, even in the period of, of rebellion, the police are a source of violence. They are bringing the violence in what you describe as the cycle in the book that is emboldened by what is ostensibly police reform, right? In the, in the late 1960s, we need to professionalize the police. We need to give them better uh, equipment. This was the inaugural police reform, period of police reform. And what that does is strengthen their violent intervention into black communities, instigating this cycle that you describe of the, the police come in, they attack, you know, youthful transgressions that, you know, are, are looked fondly upon in middle class uh, white communities are, uh, you know, become the fodder for uh, police intervention, incursion and violence. And that provokes a response uh, from uh, the people who live there. And now we can see uh, it's it's not that kind of daily cycle, but the violence of the police is 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 no longer it's not described and it's barely even debatable. I mean, this was a significant part of the public discussion last summer. What is up with the cops? They are coming. It's you know, it's the tear gas. But, you know, the the old man in Buffalo, New York, you know, who dared to ask a question of a police officer gets his skull cracked. No hyperbole. His skull is cracked in coverage every day of the police just beating the hell out of people. And now, as you say in the book, the incontrovertible proof, right? The video everywhere of police just beating people up. And so it raises this question of what do we do about it? And so for me, one of the most important chapters of your book was the chapter on Cincinnati. Is this this rebellion that few people know about because 9-11 happens a few months later and all this history is just wiped uh, off the map as police become revered and treated like soldiers. And the, the invention of this phrase of first responder uh, is injected into our public uh, vocabulary. But what is so important about Cincinnati is this is what a success story looks like, right? 17 years of commissions and blue panel, you know, blue ribbon panels. And here's how you fix the problem. And, you know, they do get misdemeanor arrests dropped. They do get, you know, half the number. They have the number of, of complaints about police brutality. And yet, the police are still. <laughs> they still kill Sam Dubois. Dubois. Yeah. After all of this, and so what? <laughs> what does what does this mean for yeah. 
police reform. If one, if it takes 17 years of recommendations, what was it, 214 recommendations over a 17 year period, federal intervention, all of, if it takes this Herculean effort just to get a reduce in the number of arrests and still a police killing, what does this mean? For, for police reform. And and I have to say too, you know, your the the way that you frame that in terms of the the violence, police violence not being debatable. I mean it, it ties it I mean we just saw this today with Andrew Brown Jr. Oh. and the fact that you know that's ruled that it's ruled as justified shot in the back of the head. They won't release the video. I mean we don't even right. have a video. Right. And they're saying that it's justified and there won't be charges. I mean that's you know it's Unfortunately, it follows the larger pattern. It's not surprising, but that just underscores um, the that undebatable violence. Yeah, I mean, I think so. The the, the Cincinnati story, and and really, you know, the the commission story, the Kerner Commission story, is one that probably people are familiar with. But you know, following every every rebellion, almost every rebellion, or many of the rebellions in the sixties and seventies, you know, a liberal commission would come and make these recommendations. And you know, the big takeaway from the book, and the and the takeaway from the Cincinnati chapter is that reform is not going to get us out of the cycle. Reform is not the answer. We've tried reform. We've tried professionalization. We tried bringing in more cops of color. And that has fun- not fundamentally disrupted the, the power dynamics and the inequalities um, and, and the logics of American policing, which is that, you know, in communities of color, the purpose of policing is to hunt for suspects or potential suspects and arrest them and put them in prison. And um, until we get out of that, until we get out of this conception of public safety as an officer with a uniformed officer with a gun, usually an outsider going into a community, we're never going to address many of these problems. So so it's not about police reform. It's about resources. It's about ending Mm -hmm. the police as we know them. It's about empowering communities and, you know, in some ways going back to um, and this is this is out of my first book, but going at going back to. This kind of, you know, the policy precedent of the war on poverty, where for a very brief moment, really only from 64 to 65, the federal government was funding grassroots organizations directly. And we need, you know, the most promising public safety innovations, the most promising social programs in general right now are at the community level. They're at the grassroots level. And those that is what needs to be funded at scale. Um, Mm -hmm. That's that's where we need to go moving forward. Police reform um, doesn't get us out of the cycle. Police reform doesn't get us out of uh, systemic racism and the hierarchies that that we've been living under for the past several hundred years. And I think related to that, because one of the questions that always comes up when this discussion of either defunding the police or or police and prison abolition come up is what about violence? Um, And so there, I think that your your chapter on uh, the Los Angeles uprising is is really important because you talk directly about uh, the the reckoning among uh, gang members in in. Uh, LA in the late 80s and 90s, um, and their realization that they had a role to play in 
stopping the cycle of violence um, in black communities. Can you talk some about that? Yeah, well, and, and they also said so. So, you know, in the middle of the rebellion in 92, um, various Crips and Watts sets in or sets in Watts tied to the housing projects um, in the area came together and said, and this had been, you know, a year long effort. So it didn't just begin with the rebellion, but it took hold during the rebellion, which is significant, you know, because they saw the rebellion as an opportunity to Hmm. participate and be empowered to rebuild Los Angeles. Right. And what they said is, look, we will stop the violence. We, you know, we don't want to live like this. We don't want to keep our, our, our loved ones, our neighbors under siege. Um, we're living in a community with, with much, much mistrust and we will stop the violence. Just give us, give us jobs, invest in us, invest in our communities, invest in our schools, give us healthcare, give us the basic things that we need and this will stop. Right. And, and I think that, you know, if we're really serious about solving the, the very real problem of gun violence, um, we need to then look at the dynamics that get set up in the communities that are most ener- energetically policed in, in the most mm-hmm. vulnerable communities of color, which is that, you know, asking questions like, why is it that young people are more likely to die uh, either by police or by each other in the same communities that are heavily policed with heavy rates of incarceration. That doesn't add up. So again, it's about shifting our investments to, you know, beyond police and prisons as a solution to manage the material manifestations of joblessness and of inadequate health care and of failing schools and, and subpar housing. Um, the, the vision that the members of the Crips and the Bloods who were involved with this truce um, presented to officials in Los Angeles is, you know, one of the uh, a missed opportunity, but just mm-hmm. a tragedy because, you know, you have to wonder like, well, if, if authorities at all levels would have invested, they were asking for $4 billion essentially for a complete overhaul of South LA. What would South LA look like today? And then by the end of the decade, instead of that investment, instead of the kind of um, public safety mechanism that the Crips and the Bloods proposed, which was to have community patrols, um, they got a brand new shiny jail to the tune of tens of millions of thousands of dollars. Um, And so you know, until we begin to give people the resources that that we need. And we know that this this decision, this post-civil rights decision to invest in policing and incarceration has not kept people safer right. in, in, in the most vulnerable communities, has not improved public safety. Until we say we need to make a different set of investments, we're going to be stuck in this cycle. And that's and that's really um one of the main, I hope, uh, takeaways of of this book. These rebellions, the police violence will continue, as will the the socioeconomic inequalities that that lead to them. And also, I've got some questions here, but I just, I think the point that, you know, policing, um, what you describe uh, as the the energetic policing of uh, poor and working class Black communities, um, also helps to create crime because, you know, we've seen the studies, right, that uh, black men in particular with criminal records, you know, have no chance in the conventional job market, in the above ground job market. And so this constant surveillance, policing, arrest, imprisonment uh, perpetuates its own cycle by 
making people unemployable and necessitating uh, the the creation of an underground economy and all of the attendant uh, problems that come with that. Exactly. Th- this is really what it means to be systemically flawed. Right. Exactly. And and that and prisons themselves too are criminogenic. So it just it's this yes. constant feedback loop. Now that there's a question here. Um, do you see? Uh, what do you see as the link, or is there a link between uh, the black rebellions uh, during since the 1960s, um, during the 1960s, and the prison uprisings that uh, start to happen uh, around the same time? Yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, this is this is the same crucible period that I'm talking about with the rebellions of the, in the streets is the crucible period in, in prison uprisings, of mm-hmm. course, when um, prisons themselves are becoming blacker and browner. And, you know, talking about the, the, the criminogeneity becoming uh, a new organizing space, frankly, um, with a new set of possibilities for political organizing that people who are incarcerated are similarly seizing. And of course, living living in literally, I mean, the conditions of incarceration are, are, of course, very different, but are responding to um, an occupation and everyday policing of their of, of every single movement um, within within the prison itself. So, you know, I don't deal with the prison rebellions in the book, but certainly they're linked and they're also part of very much a part of uh, the freedom struggle and the civil rights and black power movements. Um, here's another question. Uh, do you see any patterns in how rebellions uh, were covered by the the press? Today, there's a pattern in which police release statements to the press and then cell phone videos uh, uh, come out often, you know, contradicting those. Is there any kind of pattern in, in press coverage in the period that you're looking at? So most of the press coverage, uh, the, the vast majority of it is is one based on police accounts and officials accounts and police records. So it in, in many ways reinforces the uh, legitimacy and the accounts of the police and portray, tend to portray the participants as um, kind of, you know, in it for the in it for the fun of it. Very often the kind of socioeconomic demands are ignored um, and it and it's this this drama where, you know, the the these youth were being rowdy or communities being rowdy or somebody's out of line. The police come in and they get attacked, um, especially, you know, one of the through lines of the 60s and 70s period is the um, what I call like the boogeyman of the American imagination, which is this this mm. idea of black sniper. Right. Um, very much tied to the Vietnam War context. But, you know, the idea is that. Uh, police are being ambushed and shot and um, and that 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 people are participating in the rebellions are out there, you know, hunting for police. Um, and this gets in many ways, this is crafted. It really takes hold during the Newark uprisings and becomes crafted by the mainstream media. But the tendency is um, and and there was this. That's not to deny that there were police ambushes and sniping during this period, but they tended to be overreported. And um, the the. You know, in in many rebellions, shooting was involved. But given the lack of police casualties, this indicates that the shooting itself was more of an intimidation tactic to say we're here and we're going to fight back. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you try to come in, then, then the objective was to actually kill police officers. Um, but this is, you know, this sets up this dynamic where, and we see this in through many press accounts where the, the people who participate in the rebellions are the criminals and the police officers are the victims who are, you know, upholding law and order and, and keeping the larger community safe and preventing the rebellion from spreading into white neighborhoods. Um, having said that, though, and, you know, the, the coverage, of course, shaped the depth in which I could get into many of the stories of the communities who were rocked by rebellion. There were, you know, many other reporters who wanted to search for deeper causes and spent time in community, you know, in communities and interviewed people. And so, you know, similar to the coverage today and similar to the uneven coverage, according to news outlet and political orientation, sometimes you're going to get a richer account, a more nuanced account that actually takes and takes uh, residents perspective seriously. And other times you're going to get, you know, basically a reporter who just talked to police officers or who mm-hmm. also views the the violence as completely meaningless. And, and that's going to shape the way that they report on it. One question here. Um, what about police unions when we talk about um, police reform? So even if you accept the conventional ideas uh, about police reform, that that is the more realistic road uh, to go than defund or uh, let alone any discussion about uh, a world without police. Um, how do police unions factor in uh, to this? That's a great question. And of course, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the change in, in, in the kind of nature of rebellion through the late 20th century is also the story of the, of police unions becoming more powerful, becoming a more powerful elected electoral force and becoming more powerful in city government. Um, and, you know, police unions have been and, and will be the kind of the biggest obstacle um, to future reforming. We saw in Cincinnati and in, 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 you know, one of the one of the reasons why the the kind of reform program and, and Cincinnati, it took um, nearly a decade of federal intervention through a pattern or, or practice um, investigation and then memor- memorandum of understanding with the police union in order to realize the very few reforms that they that they did. Right. Um, because unions, of course, are very resistant to any change whatsoever. So, you know, this the, the story of the the, the kind of post-68 uh, Safe Streets Act moment is the story both of the professionalization of police but the rise of power of police unions. And this is, you know, part of the reason why, as we've been talking about, that um, that the, the kind of the not only reinforces the police monopoly on violence, but also, you know, makes police action kind of undebatable because police unions in the, in recent decades, in the last few decades of the 20th century, have become such a powerful uh, force within localities. So moving forward, I mean, it, you know, the, the power of the unions is one of our um, biggest obstacles, and ironically, the you know the own like the, the union that is supported. Um, right. You know, more so than any kind of labor union or anything else. Again, right. um, these questions about, you know, who 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 gets power and access and control um, in this country. So we're almost out of time. So the last question I want to ask you is um, what if you tell us what you think the most important message um, you're trying to get across 
uh, with this book. Why this book right now? This conversation has been so great because I feel like I've gotten, I've been able to get a lot of ideas and a lot of the most important messages out there. Thanks to you, uh, Kianga and your brilliant questions. But I mean, I think, you know, going back to the cycle that this idea of the cycle, I mean, I, and, and, and as a way out of this, the, the kind of continued, uh, crisis, um, of, of policing is that, you know, police violence precipitates community violence that, you know, again, thinking about these questions of violence and, and the causes of crime, um, you know, until like we basically, in, until this cycle isn't broken, until it is broken, until we no longer um, empower police officers to respond to and manage what are fundamental human rights, what are fundamental uh, socioeconomic inequalities, um, this violence is going to continue. And, and we're really at this crossroads now where if we don't, you know, we, we don't need another commission. We don't need more reform. We, we know what we have to do. Um, the Kerner commission said it, I mean, the Kerner commission was flawed, but they said, look, if you want to stop rebelling in the future, what we need is a massive infusion of resources into low income communities of color. And, we're going to continue to see the police violence and that that violence is going to continue to precipitate community violence until we begin to finally commit to investing those resources. And, you know, that is going to take a major change in, in some ways in, in hearts and in minds. And, um, and the task before us is daunting, but, you know, to me, that is, that is one of the, if not the main takeaway of the book. It's time for a different set of investments. Elizabeth Hinton, America on Fire, the untold story or untold history of police violence and black rebellion since the 1960s. I've read it. It's brilliant. I've never read anything quite like it. It's one of those books that uh, you wish you'd been reading all along to try to understand uh, better this important pivotal decade in American history of the 1960s and the early 1970s. Get the book. Thank you. Thank you, Kianga. And thank all of you for coming. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.